What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks for tuning in. Chris Stemp here. I had to pause for a minute because every now and then I have conversations that reiterate why for over 10 years we have done this podcast. Editing on weekends, trying to build the business at nights trying to figure out how to be a better show for you. And then I'll have a conversation like this and I'll realize the best part is getting to talk to these people. This week on the show, we're talking to Dr. Ethan Cross. He wrote one of the best books I've read in a long time on a subject that we all understand, we all identify with. The book is called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, why it matters, and how to harness it. As you can glean from the title, it's all about the difference between the voice in our head and the chatter in our head. The negative talk, but it goes so much deeper than that. And I'm more interested in getting you into the interview than telling you about it here. A little bit about Ethan. He is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. 
He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business. He's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He has his bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania and his PhD from Columbia. This book has received numerous accolades, such as an Amazon Best Nonfiction Book of 2021, an Amazon Best Business and Leadership Book, Goodreads Best Nonfiction Book of 2021, Apple Best Audiobooks of 2021. I mean, you're just in for a treat. Can you do me a favor, though? If you love this episode as much as I did, will you tell us, will you tell people publicly? Can we see a flurry of tweets and Instagram posts about this? Whatever you can do to just spread the word. I'm not even going to plug patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. I'm not even going to plug that. I'm going to ask you to share this. Word of mouth is the best way we can grow. And make sure you're subscribed. Thank you for the emails we've gotten recently. Thanks for reaching out, telling us what you think, what you like. So excited to bring you this episode with Dr. Ethan Cross about his new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Enjoy. Look, your book is hitting a nerve. And I don't know if it's because you told people, hey, you're not ill if you talk to yourself, or if it's just because you highlighted something that is part of the human condition, but very rarely discussed. Why do you think people are latching onto this and what drove you to want to talk about it? Great questions. I think chatter, which you know I, I, I describe as getting stuck in a negative thought loop, worrying, ruminating, catastrophizing. I think this is an incredibly common experience that we have, but because we don't learn about it at school or talk about it necessarily at the dinner table when we're when we're growing up, we don't really know what it's all about. So a lot of people aren't sure if their tendency to worry and ruminate is normal or not. Um, a lot of us don't un- understand why we even have things like an inner voice. Like, what does it actually mean to have an inner voice, Chris? I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people about this over the past year, and people have totally different conceptualizations of what this is. A few years ago, there was actually this huge brouhaha. I think that's a word. Is that a word? Can I use 100%. that? 100%. It's a okay. smart word, too. I'm okay. a fan. Brouhaha, <laughs> especially if we use it in that connotation accent on there (laughs) that's right that's right um someone said they don't have an inner voice and and a lot of people chimed in i don't i don't i don't know if i have one either what does it mean to have an inner voice and so um so the hope was that my book would help on the one hand just give people some way of making sense of their inner world right this inner world that is fundamental to all of us Let's try to like weed through what makes sense and what doesn't, give people a vocabulary for talking about that inner world, and then um, talk about what science has revealed when it comes to the diverse and wonderful array of tools that exist to help us manage that inner world. You know, it's really remarkable. I don't actually talk about this in the book, but our struggles with our mind um, getting stuck in these negative thoughts, this is something that we have grappled with since likely as long as we have been roaming this planet in our current form as people, homo sapiens, even possibly before, um, I recently came across a, uh, a finding that I just find remarkable. 
Did you know that the earliest surgical procedure on record is a procedure that was used to help people manage their emotions? It was a procedure called trepanation, and what it involved doing was taking a, a stone drill and drilling a hole in our skulls to release the evil spirits that were in there causing havoc. The first surgical procedure on record was a procedure that was used in part to help us manage our emotions. This to me speaks to just how profound this problem is, this problem of how do we manage our emotional life. And we've come a long way from drilling holes in our head to deal with those problems. Um, And we've got lots of more sophisticated and for people like me who don't have very high tolerances for pain, um, you know, less painful tools as well. So, so I think those are probably some of the reasons why folks have, have taken up, um, have read the book. And uh, it's certainly been a delight to chat with folks about it. I want to touch on that, actually, what you just said about the, the first uh, surgery on record. It actually goes to show that it probably is more painful to deal with emotional chaos than physical chaos. I just saw a video, and I I know a lot of people know this, about how if you take a lottery winner and a quadriplegic, a few years later, they're going to have reverted back to about the same happiness as beforehand. And that's amazing, considering so much of us value and focus on our physical selves, ailments, etc., far more than our mental, yet... As you were explaining, it seems like, and I would agree, we struggle more and perhaps are are more ailed by our emotional states. Yeah, I, I, I would, you know, uh, I think it's a great observation. There's some data to support this. I remember learning about a study a few years ago that that looked at the impact of physical and social or emotional pain. And um, one of the things that I recall the author's finding is that the acute impact of physical pain is often more severe in the sense of like, you know, get, getting your hand caught in a stove, like burning your your fingers. Like that's more more painful in an acute sense than uh, getting rejected as an example. Yeah. But usually that physical pain tends to subside, whereas the emotional pain often lingers because of what I call chatter, which is yes. we experience those rejections, we get into those arguments, and we don't just leave them behind, but we keep on reflecting on them over and over again. And we keep them active in our heads in ways that are the source of enormous, enormous suffering. I mean, if I think back to the last month, let's say, and I've injured myself because I'm a klutz plenty of times. <laughs> during, you know, Just last night, I got into bed and I stubbed my toe terribly. I screamed out. I woke up my wife. It wasn't good. But um, but when I think about like what's been most painful for me over the past month, I mean, top 10 are all emotional, social experiences. They're not the stubbed toes or sliced fingers when cooking or, you know, sunburns for fair skinned people like myself. <laughs> um, they are, they are the you know, the catastrophizing, oh my God, did that thing I said, is is that going to be taken the wrong way? It is, you know, the worst case scenarios that we build in our head. And as a species, we are just exquisitely adept at coming up with those worst case scenarios. You know, we can ruminate endlessly about the past. That's why I think that chatter um, is one of these big problems that we face as, as a culture. I, I genuinely think 
think this is a big thing we struggle with. I, I don't say that to just be hyperbolic or exaggerate. Um, you know, if you look at the data and you see, you know, anxiety and depression, um, the impact that that has in the workforce, we know anxiety and depression are fueled by chatter. The World Health Organization put a price tag on this for 2021. How much does that impact the global health economy? One trillion dollars. We know chatter impacts our relationships. You know, we talk endlessly about our problems to others. People eventually start to pull away from us. Uh, and we know it can damage our physical health. But you know what, Chris? I'm just realizing I did not answer the second part of your question, which was... Oh, don't worry. I wasn't going to let you forget it. <laughs> okay. I, I, I have the answer. I have the yeah, answer. Why it. did I decide to write yeah. this book? Um, I can actually... Um, I actually know exactly the, the point in time that led me to decide to write it. So I have been thinking about these issues. What what is What does it mean to have an inner voice? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do we all have one? When does it turn into chatter? I've been thinking about those kinds of things for like 40 years, and I've been studying them formally for 20. But I didn't decide to write a book about this until about five or so years ago. Uh, when I was last teaching a seminar on this topic at the University of Michigan. And it was a senior seminar, and one of the students in the class on the last day of class asked me, why didn't anyone teach us about this information earlier on in life? And I didn't have a good answer to her question. And so what I did was this classic teacher-teacher move, which is, you know, I paused. That's a good question. And I, and I deflected. So what do other people think? Why do you think you haven't learned about this yet? Yep. And you know, and that and that like for educators who are listening, if you don't have that tool in your repertoire, it works. Yep. It got me through the class. However, I didn't hear anything that the students were really suggesting after that question was asked cuz in my head the chatter started to brew. Why haven't we taught students about this? Why aren't we doing a better job communicating? And so that really um, lit a fire within me to to start this process of of trying to translate translate what we know about this phenomenon of of chatter of getting stuck in these negative thought loops and and talking about why that happens and what tools are out there to help us with it. You mentioned something that jumps out to me. We will remember emotional social pain far more than physical and. Instantly, what I jumped to is exactly what you did. We'll use the analogy of stubbing a toe, but it could be breaking a leg or spraining a wrist or whatever. Most people don't then avoid those activities because of memories of the physical pain. So, I mean, I played sports my whole life and have encountered numerous physical ailments. But I think it's because I don't blame myself for most physical pain. I say, oh, I'm in this tough situation. I'm running fast. I tripped. There was a rocket, whatever. But emotional pain, I do. Have you found any tie to that? How would you react to that? Chris, um, you've just gained acceptance into my lab if you want to start doing some <laughs> research and work on your PhD. I mean, that is, a fa that is a fabulous question. And I'm not just saying that. That is a truly deep and insightful view of this issue we're talking about and you know my, my 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 brain is firing now with all sorts of possibilities um there's the sense of personal responsibility that we may have we may feel more responsible for the social pain experiences than the physical ones there may also be this sense that we play a role in perpetuating 
our social pain experiences more than the physical pain experiences. Like, you know, time heals all wounds. And that is true of both physical and social pain. But it seems to me that that our ability to extend those social pain experiences, it's really easy for us to do that. You know, we can, we can when we're dealing with a physical injury, and then, you know, we're, we're generalizing here across the range of physical injuries, but let, let's talk, you know, we're not talking about like terminal illness here, but instead, you know, uh, a sprained ankle and the kinds of run-of-the-mill negative stuff we deal with physical. Um, we can make those experiences worse by doing what my kids like to do, which is focus exactly on the pain, right? So they'll they'll look at the boo-boo. Oh my God! You ever have someone yes. foe scream on the show before? I could do a full rendition Let's of that. Let's do it. No, I mean, yeah. hey. You know, like, you know, oh my God, it's so terrible. Look at all the blood. And as yep. my daughter's like gripping the wound, squeezing the blood so it drips <laughs> even more and and is, is getting consumed with it. Like, so you could do that to make it worse. But at a certain point, that wound will heal relatively quick and go away. With the rejections, with with the faux pas that we create, I mean, we don't just we. we it, it's not only that we can think about those experiences, but then we can also make them so much worse than they actually are. And there's seemingly no limit to the degree to which we can elaborate on our negative experiences in ways that make them make them feel worse. And so maybe to go back to your point. Maybe we have some insight into the role we're playing in all of this. And for that reason, we don't even want to touch it. Like that email that comes in at 11 p.m. at night, and we know if we look at it, we're not going to be able to go to bed. Maybe it's the same thing here. That would be a great hypothesis to test. Yeah. I was just thinking this, not to belabor the analogy, but is there any sense of truth in, you know, often with a physical ailment, we wrap it up, we cover it, we give it time, and we walk away. But with emotional, we actually take that scab and we pick at it. Does it all make sense to say, look, I'm going to put the Band-Aid over this and I'm going to forget about it and then move on and then I'm better? Well, if, if we could do that with our emotional pain, I think in, in many ways we'd be much better off. In fact, one of the approaches to dealing with chatter that was very popular when I first started doing research in this area, when I first got to graduate school was to advise people to distract themselves from the problem they were struggling with um, by doing something positive and engaging. So not distracting by like drinking or things like that, but but you know go go immerse yourself in your work rather than think about these relational issues or or vice versa. Um, and then once you're done distracting, the idea is you come back to the problem and you've got a little bit more perspective. You've had some time away, so you should be able to then problem solve more effectively. Here's the problem with that approach. The problem is that, number one, it can be really hard to distract ourselves from emotional pain. And most people, if anyone's ever had the experience of trying to read a book when they're worried about something, or even watch a movie, or even play with their kids, like engage in fun activities, but you just can't quite immerse yourself in those experiences because your mind is somewhere else, that speaks to the difficulty we have disengaging from the chatter when it is firing on all cylinders. So that's that's one problem. The other problem is that when we come back to the to the 
to the social pain or the emotional pain after distracting, oftentimes it's just as raw. So mm. if we haven't done anything to reframe how we think about it, we don't actually feel better about about the issue. So in that sense, like um, the rate of healing is a little bit different with physical and emotional ailments. That makes sense. Is chatter simply a output of our creativity that has been negatively used due to our propensity to want to survive? Like, do you think it's just our creativity saying, hey, I'm going to think of the worst things that can happen so you don't die, and it's just continued over generations? Well, I think chatter is a, a manifestation of, it, of an otherwise healthy process that is going in the wrong direction. It's like, if we use the metaphor of a hammer, a hammer is a source of amazing innovation, right? Like a hammer was used to build the house that I'm sitting in right now. But used in the wrong context, it can be a massive source of destruction too, right? And now most, most carpenters who know how to use a hammer are using it to create, uh, not to destroy. But every now and again, it could get them in trouble, like when they wield it too hard and go through the sheetrock. I think that's not a terrible metaphor for talking about chatter and the inner voice. So just to zoom out a bit and give everyone a way yeah, of let's do it. making sense of all of these concepts. When I use the term inner voice, what I'm talking about is our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And this is an amazing tool of the human mind. It's a tool that evolution has endowed us with that we are much better off as a species for having. So what does our inner voice let us do? Um, what makes it so amazing? It lets us keep information active in our heads for short periods of time. Like when you try to uh, memorize a phone number in your head, you repeat it over and over. I don't know that people actually do that anymore because of I, but, phones. But but what's funny is that's this, the first example that as soon as you said it, I was like, like memorizing a phone number. <laughs> yeah, so people still do that. Now, now, but, you know, Chris, you're not, you and I are- I'm a, not a spring chicken anymore. We're, we're of a similar vintage. I don't yeah. know if that's going to yeah. land with the younger listeners. I know it. It won't. But, but <laughs> what might is, you know, just going to the grocery store and reminding you what your mom or dad told you to buy. Like you right. rehearse the list, eggs, cheese, yogurt, whatever else. That's your inner voice. It's part of what we call our working memory system, which is a basic system of the human mind. And your inner voice is a part of that. So that's one thing it lets you do. Your inner voice lets you simulate and plan. Before you go out on a date, many people will imagine, hey, what is that person gonna ask me? And what am I gonna say in this context? Before I give a big presentation, I'll often in my head go over all the talking points that I'm going to say. That's me using my inner voice. I use my inner voice to coach myself along all the time. When I'm exercising, I'm constantly talking to myself. I'm thinking, all right, seven more reps. Then you get to get a break. Seven, six, five, right? I'm, I'm in my head communicating, coaching myself along. And then we use this inner voice to do something else that's, I think, pretty remarkable, which is we use it to tell stories, right? Things happen in our lives that we don't expect. We get dumped, we don't land the job, whatever it is, when that happens, we try to make sense of those experiences and we tell ourselves, we create stories that give our life meaning, that give rise to our sense of who we are and we use our inner voice to do that. So memorizing, planning, controlling, storytelling, your inner voice helps you do all of those things. You would not want to live life without one. Um, now, that's the positive side of our inner voice. That's that captures most of the context in which we use it. 
except there are these situations where we try to use this tool and it doesn't help us out. Instead, it gets us into trouble. It backfires. We try to activate this tool to come up with a story to explain why we're suffering, but we don't tell a coherent story with a beginning, middle, and end. Instead, we get stuck in a negative thought loop. Oh my God, what if this and then and this? And you know, the next thing you know, you're either dead or in jail when you go down that negative rabbit hole. Yeah. And that's what our inner voice does to us when it morphs into chatter, which is the dark side of the inner voice. So the inner voice, our ability to talk to ourselves, this is an amazing feat of evolution, but it's an imprecise tool. And one of my sincere hopes is that writing this book can give people a scientific guide for how to wield this tool more effectively in their lives. Because we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how to use this tool more effectively. I think most people are constantly trying to, hey, how can I ruminate or worry less? And, and we stumble on tools. And some of these tools that we stumble on in our lives, they work and science says they're useful. But other things that we stumble on that we think help us, science shows actually they often don't help and sometimes they can even harm. And so so that's why I think science is in a, is really valuable here to provide us with this really compass for navigating this terrain. And now a word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I've been drinking Athletic Greens for two months now. It's such an important part of my morning routine. I wake up, shower, brush my teeth, then I go downstairs, shake up my athletic greens, sit down at the table, and do my daily wordle. Like I've mentioned before, I was overtaking vitamins and other supplements in the morning, and I wanted to see what all the hype was about with athletic greens. And oh my, let me tell you, it is definitely worth it. Athletic greens is quick and easy, it shakes up well, and it tastes really good. It doesn't taste like you're having vitamins or trying to consume something healthy. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I take AG1 every morning before my coffee and my breakfast. I get up, pour some water, pour the Athletic Greens in it, shake it up, and make sure I finish before my day gets started. Athletic Greens contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and it still tastes good. For me, I find it supports my mental clarity and alertness. You've got to check out Athletic Greens. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews, and it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash smart. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash smart to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. One more time, that's athleticgreens.com smart.
And now back to the episode. Yeah, actually, speaking of science, you said something there, and I wanted to ask that and kind of preemptively answered. Any other information on what the actual neuroscience brain science says about where this originates from? I mean, I know that's a weird question and some people don't care, but you called it part of our uh, something memory system. And I just find that very fascinating. Like, do we know, can we point to a region and here's why and things like that? Yeah, we could talk, we could point to um, not a single region, but rather networks in the brain that, um, that support uh, linguistic and auditory processes. Um, they, they're, so, you know, I've, I've been doing brain science for about 20 years and it's really interesting to see how this has evolved because when I first got involved in this work, it was all about individual regions. Like the amygdala is the seat of emotion. Turns out that is far from the case. Uh, almost, you know, well, with very few exceptions, the name of the game when it comes to the brain and how it operates is we're talking about patterns of activity that stretch across multiple regions of the brain. And, and we're interested in how those different brain regions work in concert with one another to give rise and support different kinds of psychological processes like talking to ourselves. And it's not just different regions of the brain talking to each other in interesting ways. Sometimes, even within the same region, you can have populations of neurons talking to themselves differently. So, you know, think about a brain region as a country that's composed of lots of citizens. It's not just whether the country is involved in an activity. It's also how the citizens are communicating with one another. Um, so, so that's just some, like, basic operating principles of, of, of the brain. But... Um, you know, we know that chatter, for example, um, it, it often recruits a network of brain regions that are involved in, in what we call self-referential processing and reflecting on ourself. Um, it, it, this is the cortical midline. So if you were to take a, a chain, so this is going to be gory. Get ready for it, <laughs> listeners. Get with that. You know, if you're, if you're looking right at me and you take a, a, a chainsaw, what was the horror horror guy? Who, Which, was, uh, J- was that Jason? Jason, the hockey was mask that, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Is that I the, think, I think I, right? I, I, Who knows? I think so. I think you're right. <laughs> anyway, you take the chainsaw and you just kind of go straight down, sure. like my my head, like through my nose, split the nose in half, and then it opened me up. The cortical midline is what you see, and that's a strip of different brain regions that we find is increasingly active when people are are reflecting on their own lives in in perseverative ways. And so we we do know where to where to look in the brain to see some of these different um, processes play out. Okay. Yeah, I was. I find that stuff fascinating. You mentioned when we got on uh, another question I had written down, which was, I've heard that some people don't have chatter. And I remember being like, I'm sorry, what? Because then yeah. it just opened me up to think, wait, what else am I doing that nobody else is? And what the hell's going on? You have a really unique perspective of being able to study, talk to, engage multiple people over the course of this. What are the different experiences people have with this? And what stood out to you over that time? Well, so, uh, so it's really interesting. Um, what, as soon as I define the inner voice for people in the way that I just did for you and everyone who's listening, when I talk about it in those terms, that clears a lot of, um, a lot of things up for people. No one at that point says, I don't have an inner voice. Got it. Um, what people do say, and what is, and this is supported by the by data that I'm aware of, is that 
we lean on our we may lean on our inner voice for different reasons to different extents that is there are some people who report um never engaging in a silent back and forth conversation in their minds like Ethan, here's what you should do. No, I don't know if I should do this. Yeah, you should do it. Like that back and forth mm-hmm. internal dialogue. Some people say that they never experience that, um, that they engage in more visual forms of of, of thinking, um, which I think makes sense. Like there's variability in, in most processes or many processes that we engage in. But if you ask those same people, um, you know, are you capable of repeating a phone number in your head silently? Inevitably, they say yes. So, so you know, think of the inner voice as a Swiss Army knife that lets you do lots of different things. Not all of us may use that Swiss Army knife to, you know, take out the tweezers, but but we all, you know, use it to cut cut some bread. I don't sure. know. Is the Swiss Army knife even relevant anymore as a metaphor? I think so. I yeah, mean, man, yeah. are we are it's, we aging hard. ourselves? It's like, hard. I, if it doesn't I, I, live in an iPhone, do we not know about it? I don't right. know. Well, the you know the i I'm going to use the iPhone from now on as that there you as go. the metaphor because that lets <laughs> us do lots of different things, right? That's true. And we and we all have one. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, what does your research show about the way in which the inner voice turns into chatter? So as somebody who has suffered mightily at the hands of chatter at different times in my life, um, it was all of a sudden, right? It was out of nowhere, and then it got a grip, and it doesn't leave. You know, any thoughts on where it originates, why it grows in some people, things along those lines? Well, um, there are a couple ways to to answer this question. Um, You know, what predisposes us to experience chatter um, it's a little bit of genes, a little bit of environmental experiences, and a little bit of how those two forces mix, mm-hmm. which we're learning increasingly happens, which I, th- I think is a, a fascinating additional line of work. Like when you and I were growing up, uh, we learned that you've got genes which influence your behavior and your experiences in the world. What we're now learning is that your experiences in the world can actually influence how your genes are expressed. You could think about having a, a piano in your cells with keys on them that are, you know, your, your genes, so to speak. And we all have the same piano, but our experiences in the world influence how those pianos are played. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, have we figured out though, like what is the unique, what we would call epigenetic conditions that give rise to chatter in person A versus person B versus person X? No, we don't know that yet. And that's what keeps this field really exciting. Um, we know, though, that once the chatter takes form, uh, it, it does have a particular form. People are thinking in a in a negative, cyclical, passive way about their problems. Right? They're not they're not creating stories that have a beginning, middle, and end. They're they're instead pinballing back and forth. Like, oh my God, what if this and then this happens? So it's a it's a more fragmented way of thinking about. Um, our experiences that doesn't lend itself to providing us with a sense of closure. And so when you say just keeps us there, that's in part why. Like we're not we're not actually coming up with narratives to explain our lives. We're we're stuck in this just emotion infused state of reasoning that makes it really hard for us to to come up with solutions. And the other really important piece is chatter zooms us in on our problem. 
really narrowly. So Ah, when you're experiencing it, like this is the only thing you can think of, right? You're not taking into account the bigger picture, which is often where solutions lie, but you're not taking into account that bigger picture, um, which makes it harder to get out of that funk. And so a lot of the tools actually for managing chatter involve helping people zoom out to see the broader broader perspective, um, which often helps them. Well, if, you know, I'm sure everybody listening is interested in those tools, and I definitely want to talk about a few. Um, one thing that that jumped out to me, I'll never forget, I talked to, actually, it was a previous guest on the show who I ended up talking to for months at a, you know, on end about kind of this anxiety, things that I've dealt with. And one thing he said is, look, oftentimes people who suffer from anxiety believe that the anxiety is the thing that is causing them to be successful or at least avoid negative consequences in their world. So you might say you don't like it, but how often, and, and then when he put that in my head, I found myself like, let's say I had a deliverable at work and then I would stress, and then you can call that stress anxiety. And, and then I'd go, ah, I think this is what he's talking about. If I don't feel this, I've convinced myself that I won't be successful at it. And that always changed my perspective on this idea of chatter. Well, you know, I think there's a couple of interesting ideas in that example. And it raises one, I think, incredibly important point that I would love to convey, which is that negative emotions actually do serve a function. And I think it would behoove all of us to recognize that. Like we evolve the capacity to experience negative emotions for a reason. Anxiety, sadness, anger, these are not like unfortunate byproducts of evolution. These are features of how we operate that help us do well in this world when they're experienced in the right dosages, right? So a small ping of anxiety at work, like I get it, it doesn't feel good when it's triggered, but that's why it's so amazingly useful because when I get a little ping of anxiety two days before a presentation, that's a cue that says, all right, buddy, Time to, time to actually work on this talk and rehearse it. You can't just coast. You've got to actually do something. Um, there's research which shows that experiencing a moderate level of that anxious arousal actually enhances people's performance. Yeah. Uh, the same is true of, 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 of all negative emotions. They're viewed as functional. So, so you know, it, the situation, I think, is a little complicated because to a certain extent, experiencing a little bit of negativity probably does help you do your job better probably does help you be a better parent imagine how you would be as a parent um if you if you never experienced any worry about your kids like they they might be like you know jumping off docks into the atlantic ocean during a month blizzard and yeah like you you want to have that internal alarm system so the trick of course though is uh not to let those negative emotions permeate, not to let them proliferate. And that's what, sadly, chatter does, right? Because you experience the negativity and you don't just use it as information to help you navigate the world well. Instead, you keep on making it bigger and bigger in ways that then make it really dysfunctional. Is there an inherent um, part of chatter that makes it continue to grow? Like, why is it? Why can't we just say, hey, look, there's a system in our brain that allows us to see danger and negative, and then it forces you to think through it logically, and then it moves on. Why does it get stuck in these patterns? 
Well, one of the reasons it gets stuck is because we zoom in too narrowly. And the, the upshot here is that you can correct this. In many cases, it's, it's you know, straightforward to do so. And I talk about 26 or so different tools in the book. These are not um, hard tools to implement uh, for the most part. They're simple things you could do. Um, you know, there's a lot of complexity that went into their discovery, but at the, at the end of the day, these are like simple things to implement to help broaden your perspective. And often that helps. So like one example is when I wake up at 2 a.m. with some chatter, it happens once every, I don't know, a few weeks or so. Has this ever mm-hmm. happened to you? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> uh, not a pleasant experience. And actually, this is one of the, the questions people ask me about most. Like, what do I do about the nighttime chatter? Um, you know, my advice, piece of advice number one is to the extent possible, try to get a handle on the chatter during the day before you go to bed, because when you're sleeping, you know, you, you don't have as the same level of access to effortful systems in the brain that help support tools to help you manage it. But there are still things you can do if you haven't managed that chatter. And the thing that I do is I remind myself you're not going to, this isn't going to be as bad as when you wake up in the morning yes. and you feel fresh. And and just reminding myself about that, it's a super simple way of thinking, right? I just tell them, you're going to feel much better about this in the morning. Because I always, Chris, feel better about this stuff in the morning, right? But wait, um, wait, is that because the parts of your brain that can help you deal with that turn on in the morning? It, that's in part, yes, that is in part why that's happening, right? So you don't have access your ability to reframe things. I mean, think about what happens when your kid wakes you up in the middle of the night. I mean, you're not you're not ready for a dissertation defense when that right, happens, right. right? Like you're barely even capable, I would imagine, of walking from your bedroom to theirs to tuck them back in, right? Let alone engage in elaborate problem solving over this issue. But when you wake up fresh and then you think, oh yeah, no, well, here are all the reasons why I shouldn't be worried or here's how I can manage the situation or you can talk to someone about it. So you just have access to the tools when you're fresh in a way that you did not have at 2 a.m. Simply reminding yourself about that can be a powerful aid when you wake up at 2 a.m. It's like this complex system, like one that is saying, hey, we have the ability to think through things. And one that's screaming like you're all going to die. And they both work in harmony 99% of the time for most people. And every now and again, one gets stronger. I, I just love the way you put that. It happened to me when the kids went back to school after the new year. Omicron's going nuts. We're like, we're all going to get it. I'm going to send them to school. And day one, they're going to bring home COVID. And so I woke up at like 4 a.m. and it was awful. Then I woke up at whatever, seven. And I was like, you know what? We'll be all right. And it it was this strange. And I remember that immensely. And it sounds like what you're saying is the other part of your brain turned on and said, look, you've been thinking about this for two years. Here's all the things you've already decided on. Let's just go do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this happened to me um, just a few weeks ago. We my family left on our first family vacation in, since COVID began. And it's funny, you know, we left Ann Arbor and we were so excited. We went to the Caribbean. It was like, you know, just, you haven't, we hadn't done this in so long. And then three days later, the, the whole world decided to get sick again with, with Omicron. Yeah. And, um, and 
to get back into the country, we had to to test to get back in. And at one point, I woke up at two a.m. like in a oh my god, what happens if you know if if we if we fail the test? You know where are we going to sleep? It's not at this hotel because you know that's not going to be good for our bank account. You know, <laughs> right, for right, fourteen yeah. day quarantine. <laughs> and uh, so I, that's how logical. Yeah, how are we going to? But but you know, I short circuited this by then just saying, Ethan, you're going to feel better about this in the morning. You'll be able to think about it better. And I, and I went right back to bed. So um, so that's a tool people can use. There's another one I just slipped in there. You may not have caught it though. Another tool is that can help shift our perspective, zoom us out a little bit, is something that we call distant self talk, and it involves talking to ourselves like we would give advice to another person, actually using our name to help us really relate to ourselves like we were someone else. One of the things that I've I've really been struck by in my career, we've done research on this, is that we're so much better at giving advice to other people than we are taking our own advice or giving ourselves advice. Like a buddy comes to you with a problem, they can be totally spinning about this on edge, not knowing what to do. They present the problem to you, Chris, and like, you can just easily coach them through that situation. But when you have a chatter trigger, when something stokes you, you can't think through the situation at all. And so what we've learned is that there are there are tools you can use to get you to relate to yourself like you were relating to someone else. And that can make it much easier for us to, to garner this kind of wise approach to our problems. And using your name and, and other kinds of pronouns like words like you um, those are those are linguistic tools that shift our perspective like most of the time we use the word you we use that part of speech when we're thinking about or talking about someone else right so when you think about your own circumstances all right ethan what are you gonna do this is turning on the mental machinery for advising others making it much easier for us to work through our chatter i love that one i really like that that's my that's my go-to that's my my, my my actually my two people ask me all the time. So what do you you what do you do for chatter? Yeah. Um, do you ever experience it? And like, yes, I experience it. I'm a human being. Have you seen the color of my hair? You know, this this isn't just so people take me seriously. Right, right. Um, um, but but I am pretty good at nipping it in the bud the moment it triggers. And 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 due to these, I think some of these tools. And and so the first thing I do is yeah, just distant self talk. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this? I do that silently, just for the record, not out loud. <laughs> um, and then I do temporal distancing. This I think about how am I going to feel about this a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. That really helps me put this in perspective, right? That gives me hope. I'm gonna feel better. So, and and those little, those are little shifts. And I do a couple other things too that just they take they take the edge off and and they summate to really help you get a grip on your situation in ways that can be functional. Hey everyone, Chris here, break in the action. It's very rare that you can find a company that not only makes incredible products that fit amazingly into your life, but also does it in a way that serves the planet. So excited for our sponsor this week, which is Cape Clasp. Cape like Cape Cod, clasp like the clasp of jewelry. What do they do? They partner with ocean and marine life nonprofit organizations to launch limited edition products that raise money for vital ocean research. One of my favorite products from them is their sunglasses. They're incredibly light, they're super flexible, they're comfortable, polarized, as good a quality as $100 pairs I've had in the past, 
and they're less than $35. But this is the coolest part. They are made out of 100% ocean plastic. Yes, they take ocean plastics that are killing our marine life and they turn them into functional, beautiful accessories. They use eco-friendly materials to create jewelry, sunglasses, and clothing that reflect and give back to organizations you care about, like the National Park Foundation and Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. Let's blow them up. Let's finally show the world that when you do good and make good products, that's how you succeed. Go to capeclasp.com and use the code SMART for 30% off your first order. The website is C-A-P-E-C-L-A-S-P dot com. Use the code SMART. You'll get 30% off, save the planet, get cool sunglasses, get ready for the spring and summer. Capeclasp.com. Use code SMART, 30% off your first order. Back to the show. That separating, or, or uh, I forget what you called it, but when you think in the long term, yeah. I've often tried to use that at work. I didn't realize, but in this sense, I'll go, okay, I'm really stressed out. And then I think back to all the jobs I've had and I go, how many of those stress me out, everyone? How many of those matter at all right now? Zero. Okay. Yes. Can you imagine in your next job how, like, you're going to feel the same way? That's a really. I, so that's, so yeah. So this is a flexible tool, right? You could do it going forward. How are you going to feel about this in the future? That gives you hope. You could also get into this mental time travel machine and go backward in time and think about other kinds of experiences that you've you've gotten through. Um, uh, this is actually a tool that I've used to manage COVID and the stresses and chatter surrounding it. Uh, I've thought to myself, you know, during moments of weakness, oh my God, another variant, another quarantine, you know, um, no more exercise, oh, not fun stuff. I, I've thought, well, it could be worse. Like, look, what about the Spanish pandemic, flu pandemic of 1918? That was much worse. What about the bubonic plague that ravaged Europe in the Middle Ages? Like, we got through those periods. We'll get through this. So, um, so that can be another another useful tool. That that also touches on another, I think, um, important issue that I'd love love to get listeners thinking about, which is. You know, we hear so much about this importance of being in the moment, focusing on the now. Um, and I think the messaging has gone a little bit too far. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I love being in the moment at particular times. I think it can be remarkably useful for helping us deal with distress. Uh, I'm also a fan of meditation and mindfulness. I've been meditating on and off since I was five years old. Um, you know, I, I wanted a bicycle for my fifth birthday. My dad was a new agey kind of guy. He got me a, a, a mantra instead, joy of joys. Like I couldn't wait to tell my buddies about it at school. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> so, you know, I have nothing against those traditions. I, I subscribe to them, but something has been lost in translation as mindfulness and some of these Eastern philosophical practices have been, have been commodified which is this idea that we should always be in the moment. The human mind did not evolve to always be in the moment. To the contrary, we evolve the capacity to travel in time in our minds. And this is not a bad thing. Most of the time, it's an amazingly useful thing, right? The ability to not think about, not always be in the moment 
This is what lets us experience nostalgia. It's, it's what lets us savor past experiences. It's what lets us put our experiences in perspective. Hey, I've experienced this event at work before I've managed it. Traveling in time in your mind lets you plan for the future. This ability is what lets us do things like, you know, build spaceships, right? Learn from our mistakes. And so you don't want to not travel in time in your mind. What you want to figure out how to do is um, figure out how to travel in time effectively because sometimes our mental travel machine does get stuck, right? We get stuck in the negative past or the negative future. And that is problematic. But, you know, the good news there is there are so many different tools that exist to help us out. Wow. I am so glad you said that, first of all. Um, you just cured one of my biggest stressors in life. I've for so, I've said this before on the show. I've for so long heard about living in the moment that I think about being in the moment in the moment, and it takes me out of the moment. <laughs> and that's yeah, true. I, I, I think you just coined a new like Japanese <laughs> koan. <laughs> but like that. that's chatter, right? I mean, totally. that's the chatter. It, well, it's chatter or it's a theme for the reboot of Seinfeld, if, if that ever happens. <laughs> ah, I love it. <laughs> One thing, though, that I was curious about is, there, well, there's two parts of your book that jumped out. One is the impact of talking about negative emotions. Uh, tell us what you mean by that, talking about negative emotions, and what is that impact? Um, well, there, there are two ways we, can, we, we should talk about this. And I think it's a crucially important issue, so thank you for bringing it up. Uh, one of the things we know is that sometimes talking about our problems to others can create social friction. And this is one of the ways that chatter can undermine our relationships because we um, we find people to talk to about our problems and we just keep on talking over and over and over again, which can sometimes push other people away because there's only so much that they can use to. Uh, there's so much that they can they can handle before they themselves start to get brought down. Uh, but there's another side of this whole talking equation, which is this. So what do you do in, this, in, in the instance of you've got something on your mind and you wanna get help with it? Do other people provide us with a potential resource for helping us manage our emotions? Uh, it turns out other people can be either a tremendous asset or a vulnerability. But the way a lot of us approach talking to other people doesn't actually serve us well. What I mean by that is this. Many of us hear that the route to feeling better about our problems is to find someone to vent our emotions to. Just express your feelings, get it off your chest. There's been a lot of research on venting. And what we've learned is venting can be very helpful for strengthening the friendship bonds and relational bonds between two people so it's good to know that there's someone out there who's willing to take it the time to to just listen and hear me out but if all you do is vent in a conversation the problem is you feel really close and connected to the person you're talking to um, but the problem is still active at the end of that conversation and you haven't done anything to change the way you think about things to make you feel better. So you're often just as upset, sometimes even more upset at the end of that conversation than you were at the outset. So venting alone does not help with our chatter. The best kinds of conversations when it comes to chatter do two things. You find someone to talk to who does take some time to listen and hear you out. It is important to establish that connection. It is important for that person to learn about what you've gone through. But then at a certain point in that conversation, the person you're talking to 
They help you reframe the experience. They start trying to help broaden your perspective. So Chris, you know, that, that totally sucks, that thing at work, but didn't you have to deal with something like that last year? You made it. Or here's how I've dealt with this situation. So like little ways to try to break them out of that rumination cycle by broadening their perspective. Other people are in an ideal position to help us do that. The reason why I think knowing about how all this works is so important for us is, you know, like I find it just fascinating because I'm a, a psychologist who loves this stuff. But beyond that, I think there's practical value. Uh, number one, knowing about how this works allows us to be much more deliberate about who we go to for support when we're dealing with our chatter. There are lots of friends and loved ones that I have. I never talk to them about my chatter because I know all they're going to do is, is get me to ruminate. They're not trying to create harm. They're actually trying to be helpful, but they think the way to help is to just ask me about what I'm feeling and, and just be there and listen. And that often isn't enough. So instead, I know who the three or four people are in my life that I can call for personal stuff or work stuff, and they're going to listen to me, but they're also going to help me reframe things. That's my that's my board of advisors, so to speak. Yeah. So so that's take home one. Take home two is when someone comes to you for support, you now have a playbook. You know what to do, right? Take some time to listen, and then when you see your opening, try to broaden that person's perspective. Now there is an art to doing this well, and what I mean by that is like different people, depending on the situation, require different amounts of time before they're ready to transition from just talking to. To reframing. So for my wife, for example, sometimes she'll start talking to me about something that's bugging her. I'll listen. I'll show love and warmth. And at a certain point, I'm like, hey, can I, I have a thought? Can I offer you my advice? And, you know, sometimes I'll say, no, I'm not done. I just quiet. I need to keep going. Yep. During other conversations, I'll pose the same question. She's like, please tell me what you think. That's why I'm talking to you. So you want to feel that out. And, and that is the art to doing this science well. It's the art to marriage, I would say, too. Just yes. I mean, Because as you were saying that, I was like, ooh, you're walking on thin ice. Because if you throw that reframe in too soon, you get the, you always try to fix me. If you don't throw it in at all, then you get the, all we do is complain to each other. So there is an art. There is an art. And, and let me tell you, like, as a scientist, I'm not used to talking about art, right? I love art. It's all around, you know, it's been the pictures in the house. I love looking at it. But science is like, you know, two plus two. Well, that's math equals four. But you know what I mean, right? <laughs> I like there, There's precision, right? Variables, equations. Um, and, and actually, when I was writing the book, I mean, a lot of people asked, hey, can you tell me exactly when to shift from phase one listening to phase two advising. Ooh. And I can't in good faith, um, based on what I know about the science, give that simple prescription because there is an art to doing this well. And I don't think that should be so surprising or dismaying to us as human beings because look, we're all so amazingly unique. I mean, you know, a, one conversation over coffee that we have with one person is going to take a very different form from an amazing conversation that we have with someone else. Right. And and we just want to be open and sensitive um, to those differences. That makes sense. Well, listen, Ethan, I, I mentioned before I hit record that I had a couple of listeners reach out with questions. And one of them is Doug, who who I told you just like 
crushed your book, read it, sent notes. He had a question for you. To be clear, he did not crumple the book up. (laughs) (laughs) He did not crumple it for clarity's sake. He loved every second of it. He said, you write that talking about negative experiences with others is like a social repellent. And this is what we're just talking about here. Eventually, others just don't want to be around us. Why is it so common for us to complain about an ex-wife, a manager, or a neighbor who has wronged us? So essentially, the spin on what we were talking about there, right, is why do we need to do it in the first place? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And um, I go back to this just wonderful program of research that a Belgian psychologist who I mentioned in the book, his name is Bernard Rimet, uh, launched in the the early 90s. And what Rimet wanted to know is when we experience emotions, like what do we do? And what he found over and over again across different cultures was that emotions act as a kind of jet fuel that motivates to share them with other people. So there, there are some exceptions here. Like we, we tend to not want to share our experiences involving shame, embarrassment, certain forms of trauma. But for the whole other suite of, of emotional experiences that we have, we're often highly motivated to get those emotions out and talk to other people. And the reason we do so is because when we're experiencing emotions, we have two two kinds of needs. And this is particularly relevant for the negative variety that we're talking about today, which is we have these social and emotional needs, these these desires to feel connected to other people in our network. Like we have a sense of belonging and we engage. And then we have these cognitive needs, these needs we have to ultimately work through these painful experiences to move on with our lives. And we seem to have this internal radar system that tells us that, hey, other people in the world, they can help us satisfy these two needs. So, so that's why so many of us have those desires. Now, there, there is variability in this, right? Like some people um, are more motivated to talk about their emotions than others. Some people rely on other kinds of tools to, to manage their chatter. And I think that's really important to be aware of because um, I'm a huge proponent in the there's no one-size-fits-all strategy when it comes to managing our emotional lives. Uh, I think we have evolved to have this amazing array of tools for a reason because different tools work for different people in different situations. And I think when you try to force a specific tool on everyone, um, that runs the risk of it of backfiring a bit. But um, but hopefully this answers uh, Doug's question. And Doug, thank you for, for being such an engaged reader. I really appreciate it. Yeah, he was. Awesome guy. Uh, another awesome guy, actually, Steve, who I know well, too. He said, how easily is the voice in our heads influenced by marketing and advertising? Is there anything we can do to combat this? Well, um, you know, I think the, the voice in our head is tuned by culture. And culture can take many forms. When we're young, that's that's our family. When we get older, it's our friends at school and teachers and our workforces. And of course, the socio-cultural surrounding, right? Marketing, social media. Um, I think being aware of this, number one, is really important. Simply knowing how all of this works, I think, is powerful information. 
right? Because you, you realize, number one, hey, actually, I might even be susceptible to this stuff. Um, and once you know that, I think it licenses us to be more agentic over how we navigate the world. And, and what I mean by that is I'm, I'm thinking in particular about social media here. Um, we've done research which shows, for example, that uh, endlessly scrolling through the glorified lives of others who are in your kind of social network um, turns out that doesn't always just make us feel great and sometimes it can make us feel bad about our lives right like oh my god i didn't realize that this other person has you know achieved every single thing i've ever desired in my life but in the last two weeks and looks great while doing it too mm -hmm. right so um knowing how passively consuming information on social media can maybe lead me to feel jealousy and feel bad as a result that empowers me now to engage with social media differently, right? I, maybe I mute those people so I'm not seeing the obnoxious announcements or what I perceive as obnoxious. Maybe I engage with social media more actively. Maybe I use it to like share information with other people and, and help them out rather than just mindlessly scroll through it. So being aware of this, I think, just gives us a lot more opportunity to, um, to be deliberate about how we navigate this world. And I think being more deliberate in some cases can be good. I like what you're saying there, that idea of agency. You know, you go into it, you say, okay, wait, like, what's my goal? I have control over this. I also know, and I just had a conversation with somebody else on this show, which was like, I also know what their intentions are, right? It's, it's, it's profit driven. Um, so knowing that, what can I do differently to get the experience I want? Like that's simple as, I mean, simple, not simplistic, but no, but that's exactly it. I mean, it's interesting. Like if you think about the, think about if we stick with social media for a second, this is a new ecosystem that we spend a lot of time interacting with, but we haven't had any real playbook for how to navigate that space, right? It's, been, it's so new. We're just figuring it out. And every time you figure it out, the algorithm changes or a new platform comes. But think about the lessons we we have learned ourselves and the ones we give to our children about how to navigate the other ecosystem we spend a lot of time interacting in, which is the physical world. From the time our kids are little, we teach them, hey, here's how you talk to other people in this world. You don't just go up to someone and say, Chris, I don't like the way your face looks. No, we don't do that, <laughs> right? I gave the middle finger to Christopher. Like, we don't do that. No offense. That was for, just for, as an example. Um, that's the Brooklyn in me coming out it's here. Going out, you know, um, so, you know, we, we teach our kids, like, you know, these, these are the neighborhoods you should walk in and, and, and maybe be careful here and don't go here and don't say that, but do go here and do say that. We are being deliberate in how we navigate the physical world all the time. And I think we'd be better off if we were being a little bit more deliberate and agentic with respect to how we navigate um, social media as well. And, yeah. and, and, and we're learning more about it. So now we can actually begin to do that. Well, listen, you know, speaking of social media, you've got some excellent anecdotes, stories and descriptors about social media in your book. And uh, we've been talking about it. The book is Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. It is blowing up. I've seen it everywhere. You know, congratulations on that. Ethan, I can also hear for those listening going, wait, wait, Chris, I need more. Like, I need more strategies and I need more. Yeah, that's what the book's for, all right? So my job is for us to have an engaging, enjoyable conversation. You want all the good stuff. Check out the book, Chatter. 
Um, before you go, Ethan, where else are you? You know, like, are you now uh, writing a bunch out in the world? Are you blogging? On, are you on social? Um, where can we guide people interested in this? Yeah, you know, the, the, the best place to go to start is um, my website, www.ethancrosswithak.com. There's some resources there. You can sign up for my newsletter. Um, and there are, there are links to social media too, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and um, and uh, as well as links to my lab and research that we, uh, we do there as well. So plenty of stuff to get started uh, on that site. That's great. And we'll link to all that. So they can just, you know, one-stop shop, go to our website. We'll have all Ethan's stuff. Ethan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Likewise. Hope to do it again, Chris. This was, this was awesome. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Ethan Cross. His book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It, can be found at your local bookstore. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Smart People Podcast, the easiest way to do so is head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. That'll ensure that we can keep bringing awesome interviews to you on a regular basis. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode. Next episode.